Let me encourage you to take your copy of God's Word and look with me to the book of 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 as we reflect today in verses 14 through 21. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 verses 14 through 21. Let me extend uh, a welcome to you as well on, beha- on behalf of all of our staff and the membership at Woodlawn. We're delightful, delighted for you to be here today and particularly for those of you who are with us today to celebrate at what God is doing in the lives of uh, John Brewer and Laura Amy. We're particularly thankful to have uh, family members with us today to celebrate their baptisms that we will participate in at the end of our service this morning. Second Corinthians chapter 5 verses 14 through 21 as we reflect together on this passage of scripture in relationship to our conversation from last Sunday on evangelism. A few weeks ago, I shared with you a focus for our church for this year would be on several aspects of the church. Our focus is the church and looking at several aspects of the church. And we started this time of reflection together on the aspect of evangelism in the life of the church, and particularly because of this period of time in which our church is so heavily engaged in our upward ministry. We felt like it'd be a great opportunity for us to encourage the body of Christ to live out our lives on mission with God, to be continually proclaiming the truths of God's Word with one another. So we come to this passage of Scripture today in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, and perhaps no greater text with such clarity has the text of Scripture given us for a theological foundation for evangelism, for proclaiming the truths of God's Word. Paul, in the book of 2 Corinthians, is spending the large majority of his time focused on this apology of his ministry. If you've read through the book of 2 Corinthians, and it sounds like an apology for Paul for gospel ministry, then you're right. Paul's ministry has come under attack from these super apostles, if you will, from these people who uh, profess to be followers of the Lord Jesus Christ, but by their lives and their message, deny the exclusivity of the Lord and are trying to sow seeds of discord into the body of Christ. And so Paul is writing this letter ultimately as a reason for his gospel ministry, not being anything of himself, but everything having to do with Christ. In fact, you hear the tone of that text from the very beginning in 2 Corinthians Chapter 1, Paul writes, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. Paul is laboring solely because of God's call in his life and not because there is in any measurable earthly way an advantage for the apostle Paul and gospel ministry. So here in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 14 through 19, Paul reminds us that Christ's life is the foundation of the gospel message and our motivation as believers for declaring that message. Christ's life is the foundation of our gospel message and the motivation for our declaring that gospel message. Paul speaks, first of all, 
in verses 14 through 19 of this message of reconciliation. God has given to believers the message of reconciliation. As we think about our responsibility as believers in proclaiming the truths of God's word, God has entrusted to us that message. We don't have to wonder what it is we are to proclaim. For the text of scripture itself has given us this gospel narrative. And like Paul, friends, this gospel narrative, the death, the burial, and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ must be a narrative that we know, that we believe, and that we proclaim. Listen at this message that Paul says has been given to the church. For the love of Christ controls us. Why? Because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. Verse 16, for now on, therefore we regard no one according to the flesh, even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Notice what Paul says the message of reconciliation is. The first aspect of this message of reconciliation that Paul gives us is the truth that Christ has died for all. Notice how he explains this truth of the death of Christ for all people. Paul begins by reminding the listeners to the book of 2 Corinthians that his life is indeed being controlled by one narrative. As noted just a few minutes ago, Paul's life is not being controlled by any financial gain that he might receive from participation in this gospel ministry. Paul is controlled by one thing, or we might say Paul's life in terms of his ministry is being compelled by one single solitary narrative. The one driving force in all of Paul's life is the gospel narrative that Jesus Christ has died for the sins of the world. This, Paul says, controls us. This, Paul says, compels us in gospel ministry. We have come to this conclusion, Paul writes. What is that conclusion? The gospel. What is this gospel narrative? that one, that is the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, that Jesus has died for all. This is the truth of the gospel narrative. We think of it in terms of the text that we read just a few moments ago from John chapter three, verse 16. For God so loved the world, he has given himself as a propitiation for the sins of the entire world, 
John tells us in 1 John chapter 2, verse 2, not only for ours, that is, those who have believed, but for the entire world. Jesus has died a death for all people. And in that death for all people, Jesus has objectively... Jesus has objectively reconciled the entire world to himself. Now be careful that as we understand this issue of the atonement, that in understanding the atonement in terms of Jesus' objectively reconciling himself to the entire world, that we don't fall off into the train wreck of universalism. Paul is not arguing that because of Jesus' death in this case, notice what he says, because Jesus has died for all, therefore all have died. Paul is not making the argument that because Jesus Christ has objectively atoned for the sins of the world, that in some subjective way, the entire world is there reconciled to God. There is only one means of reconciliation to God on behalf of mankind, and that is through faith. We are only reconciled to God through faith. Paul is making the argument here in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 14, that God has done all that is necessary. The work that is needed on behalf of God to bring about reconciliation for the entire world has been accomplished by the person of the Lord Jesus Christ in his once and for all substitutionary atonement on the cross. Jesus on the cross has died for the whole world. And in that death for the whole world, Jesus has now placed you and I in the, in the position in which this objective reconciliation can now be applied subjectively to all who by faith believe in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul has communicated this truth in other texts in a similar way. Look with me if you will, stick your fingers both in the book of Colossians and in Ephesians. Let's begin in Colossians chapter one first, Colossians chapter one, and then we'll flip back just a few pages to Ephesians chapter two. Colossians chapter 1, notice what Paul says in verse 20. Let's begin reading actually in verse 19. Colossians chapter 1 verse 19, for in him all the fullness of God was, was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself, notice, all things. This is objective reconciliation. God has acted on behalf of all humanity in providing reconciliation. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. Paul says that reconciliation was accomplished through Christ's death on the cross. But how in the world is this reconciliation then subjectively experience or apply to those who by faith have believed. Look with me in Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2. Notice just real quickly in Ephesians chapter 1 at the use of the pronouns that Paul is using. For example, Ephesians chapter 1 verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our, who has blessed us. Verse 5, he predestined us 
for adoption as sons. Verse seven, in him we. Chapter one is filled with the third person plural pronouns. Us, we, and our. But notice what happens when Paul reaches chapter two. Chapter two, verse one, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins. Who is or who are the us, we, and our in Ephesians chapter one? And who is the you in chapter two? Well, we don't have to surmise very far. Paul actually tells us who the you is in chapter two. Look with me in chapter two, verse 11. Therefore, remember that at one time you, you see that? You Gentiles. The you in chapter two is a reflection on the Gentiles. So here's what's taking place in Ephesians, much of like what is taking place in the book of Romans. You have in the church here a division between Jew and Gentile. Paul is primarily speaking of the Jewish believers in chapter one and the, uh, and the Gentile believers in chapter two. But how in the world are these Jewish believers and these Gentile believers reconciled together? How can they, Ephesians chapter four, walk in unity with one another? They can only walk in unity with one another as they have been subjectively reconciled to the Lord Jesus Christ through faith. So look at, Roman, look at Ephesians chapter two. Uh, let's begin reading in verse 14. For he himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. How are Jews and Gentiles made one in the context of the church? Because they agree to share similar meals? Or perhaps the Gentiles agree to participate in certain festivals? No. We are only reconciled to one another by faith in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus' death then subjectively applied to those who by faith have trusted in him also reconciles us to one another. Jesus, my friends, has done all that is necessary in order for any one of us by faith to believe in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ and be made right with God. Jesus has died for all, therefore all have died. And then notice what he says at the end of verse 15. And he died for all, for what purpose? That those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was 
raised. In other words, Paul is reminding us that Jesus' substitutionary death on our behalf has incredible practical implications in our hearts. The message of the gospel of Christ is not some reality that is uh, a philosophical reality that no one can understand or comprehend and only talked about in the context of the academy. Paul is saying, no, this gospel message has incredible implications that literally changes the hearts and lives of those who, by faith, believe in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. That those who live, how does one come to live? How does one move from being considered dead to being considered alive. Paul reminding the church in the book of Ephesus answers that question for us. He reminds us in the first half of chapter two that we are part of these sons of disobedience among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he has made us alive together with Christ, and by grace you have been saved. Friends, no measure of goodness on your behalf can ever place you in a right relationship with God. There isn't enough good works for you to do. There isn't enough kindness in your being that could ever earn you the favor of God. We are not made alive unto God in and of ourselves. If you're here today, trusting in any measurable work of your own, you have not believed in the gospel of the text of Scripture. For by grace you have been saved and this is not of your own doing. Friends, this is the good news of the gospel of Jesus. If we could, in any measurable way, take credit for earning our salvation, Paul then reminds us of the problem. We would boast, would we not? It would become about us. <coughs> we would rename our churches the Lewis Richardson Baptist Church. But Paul says it's not about you, and it's not about me. How do I come to this position of being made alive in Christ? Paul answers the question for us in Romans chapter 10. Whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. God, through Christ, has done all that is necessary for you and me to obtain life. And we attain that life not through ourselves, 
but exclusively through the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And notice what Paul says. When we have been made alive unto God, it completely, totally changes who we are. We no longer live for ourselves. We now begin to live for Christ. And look what Christ has accomplished for us. Here is his death and his resurrection. Jesus has died for our sake. It's interesting, if you're reading from the Greek New Testament this morning, Paul switches the tense of these two verbs. In the Greek New Testament, for their sake has died is in the active voice but who was raised is placed into the passive voice. Notice what Paul is saying here. Friends, Jesus actively went to the cross on our behalf. This was the will of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit from eternity past. God has willed that Jesus would become a substitute. Jesus actively went to the cross. But notice what Paul says, and he was raised. Paul is reminding us in this text of Scripture that it is God who is the primary player in this narrative of redemption God himself has raised Jesus from the dead. This, my friends, is the gospel narrative. Jesus has died and has been raised for all who by faith would trust in him, and in doing so, their lives are radically changed. What is the message of Reconciliation, the death, and the resurrection of Christ. But notice what Paul does in verses 16, 17, and 18. He continues with this message of reconciliation, and he reminds us that the life of Christ has been given for the sanctification of believers. We not only preach a message that compels people to believe in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, but that message also must include how that narrative radically changes the lives of those who by faith trust in Christ. This is part of the gospel narrative. Our lives are changed by Jesus. Look what he says, verse 16, from now on, therefore, in light of this incredible gospel truth of the death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, we regard no one according to the flesh. But Paul is an honest man, and he provides a moment of confession, if you will, and Paul confesses. However, this has not always been the case in my life. Notice what Paul says, even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. You see, friends, one of the things the gospel does in our hearts and our lives is it changes the way in which we view others. See, apart from Christ, our lives are radically filled with all kind of bitterness and hatred and hostility toward others. 
In large measure, if you want to know why our world is filled with such expressions of hate, it shouldn't surprise those of us who walk rightly with God to understand that those who do not walk rightly with God are going to live out the passions of the flesh. And my friends, it is not our nature to want to be kind to other people. It is our nature. If our nature, as Paul said in Ephesians, was to be a hater of God, how much more would we be a hater of someone who is not our maker? And as we think about this hatred that is sown into the very fabric of culture, let me remind us that the answer to that hatred is not another worldly pagan philosophy to bring about reconciliation. For clarity's sake, critical race theory and intersectionality will never make two people right with one another. Notice what Paul is saying. Only the gospel of Jesus Christ can reconcile people who were at once enemies of each other. Think about this, friends, just for a few moments in the context of our own personal lives. Think about it in the context of your marriage. I'll be honest, like Paul, sometimes a wife and I don't always see eye to eye. And there's conflict, believe it or not. How in the world are we going to work through this conflict? What keeps her coming back and saying to me, Lewis, even though you are a jerk half of the time, I still love you? It's a miracle. It's a miracle. <laughs> Think about it, friends, in the context of your relationships at work. Not all of you have the opportunity to work for a Christian organization or a Christian boss. But in the midst of that great darkness, you are a believer. How can you have good relationships with those around you? See, Paul says the gospel changes the way that we see other people. It is our nature to view people who are different than us in a very negative fashion. But in the context of the body of Christ... In the context of the people of God, notice what Paul says, it radically, the gospel radically changes the way we view other people. We now view other people through the same lens that Christ himself viewed other people. Is your primary concern with your neighbor more that he has a fence or a shed in his backyard that doesn't meet the HOA requirement, is that your concern more than where, whether he spends eternity in heaven or hell? Is your concern with your spouse more that you win the argument on a regular basis whether then your spouse has a right relationship with God? 
Are you more concerned about getting even with the moron that flew beside you on the interstate and then slammed on his brakes than you are being concerned with his or her eternal soul? See, Jesus says, Paul says, when Christ redeems our lives, it radically changes the way we view other people. How are you viewing others this morning? How do you quietly, in your own mind, or out loud in front of others, communicate about people who are so different than you. See, friends, the truth of the gospel reminds us that all of us are on a level playing field apart from Christ, sinners separated from a holy, righteous, good God. And friends, I don't care, I don't care what color you are this morning, what country you're from, or what sex you are. All of us, apart from Christ, are separated from God. But notice what Paul says. When Christ redeems our lives, it doesn't matter what nationality we are, what gender we are, what race we are, what ethnicity we are. As believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, we are all on the same level playing field. People whose hearts have been redeemed by Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. We are one in Christ. And thus, friends, in the context of the body of Christ and among Bible-believing Christians, our attitude and actions toward others ought to imitate and mirror the attitude and actions of Christ toward those who do not believe. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Verse 17, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old passed away. Behold, the new has Come. Now, this is a verse I think that many of us in the context of Christian circles have memorized at some point in our lives. It's a well-known text of Scripture. It's a passage that we indeed regularly celebrate. Interestingly enough, Paul is in some measurable way using this passage in the context of this larger narrative as kind of a gotcha moment for the Corinthians. Because remember what the problem is here. I mean, we go all the way back to the book of 1 Corinthians, and we know for sure in the book of 1 Corinthians, there, is, there are some great divisions among that church, right? They're divided in all kind of crazy ways. In the book of 2 Corinthians, there's a lot of division that is taking place in the book of 2 Corinthians that Paul is seeking to address. There's primarily divisions that are existing among leadership, 
And there are some among the Christian church who are seeking to divide people away from the true gospel as Paul has presented it and toward their own gospel, which is a perversion of the gospel. And so as Paul is writing primarily as a reflection on uh, his own ministry, he uses verse 17 as kind of a gotcha moment. You've been in that conversation before where you think someone is talking about someone else and then they turn the narrative on it and say, yeah, but that's you. And you're like, ooh, that got me. This is what Paul is doing here. This is a, in the Greek New Testament, a first-class conditional sentence. So Paul is making an argument based off of a shared assumption, and then he's going to take a 50-pound sledgehammer at the end of verse 17 and slam it right down onto the very conscience of the church, of the church at Corinth to make a point. So here it is. The church is reading along with this letter. They're agreeing to this wonderful theology. They're like, yes, Paul, amen. The gospel does indeed transform our lives. And who wouldn't say amen to this text? Therefore, if, and Paul is using this if for the sake of argument to say, yes, we're all agreeing to this. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Who wouldn't say amen to that in the context of of the church, right? Who wouldn't say yes? I've believed in Christ, and so my life has been radically transformed by the power of the gospel. But then comes the 50-pound sledgehammer, the part that they were not expecting, the knife that Paul, if you will, sticks right into their heart and turns it. If indeed you confess that Jesus has radically transformed and changed your life, then notice what he says. Then the old must have been passed away, and new must be present in your life on a regular basis. And this is the point of conviction for the church at Corinth. And if we're honest, the moment of conviction for us as well Because the fact of the matter is, sometimes we joy in this message of reconciliation. We like to say amen to it, but we always don't like to live out that message of reconciliation. Why? Because like Paul, before he was converted, we too, even though our lives have been transformed by the power of the gospel, find it far too easier at times to allow the oldness of life to manifest itself in the way in which we respond to people, the way in which we talk to others, the way in which we act. You see what Paul is ultimately saying, friends? It's not only important that you and I get the message of reconciliation correct, in terms of verbally, but it's also important that we get that message of reconciliation correct as it affects the way in which we live our lives. Is your life preaching one consistent message about the gospel? In other words, does that which you profess with your mouth align with the way in which you live your life? Paul says when Christ radically transforms our lives, 
by the power of this gospel narrative of the death, the burial, and resurrection of Christ, it affects the way in which we live our lives. In other words, Christ's death, his burial, and his resurrection increases sanctification in our hearts and our lives so that daily we begin to reflect more of the image of Christ than what we did yesterday. The message of reconciliation, Jesus has died for all. The message of reconciliation, God changes the lives of believers and sets us on a path of reconciliation. But notice what Paul does here in verses 18 through 21. God has given us the role as messengers of reconciliation. We've not only received the message of reconciliation, we've received the role as messengers of reconciliation. All of this, Paul says, is from God. God who through Christ has reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, verse 20, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us, we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God for our sake. He made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. See, friends, Jesus has given to us that message. And as believers, he's called us to be that messenger of reconciliation. And we can sit in the beauty and the comfort of this incredible facility. We can sit in our Sunday school classes and have conversations about the world as my grandmother used to say, going to hell in a handbasket. But the only way in which this world who is headed to a devil's hell can be reconciled with God is if we as God's messengers do what God has called us to do, and that is proclaim the message of reconciliation to those who do not believe. But notice what Paul is doing here. He's already given a warning to the messengers of reconciliation. Go back to 2 Corinthians chapter 4 with me for just a moment. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. We'll begin reading in verse 1. Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. In other words, Paul is saying, Lob every bomb at me you can. Bring on every accusation. I'm not going to be persuaded by your baseless accusations because I'm not seeking to please you. 
We do not lose heart, but we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. But by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience and the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled only to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Notice verse 5. For what we proclaim is not ourselves as your servants, uh, not, not ourselves, but Jesus Christ with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For it is God who has said, let light shine out of darkness, has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Paul has already given a warning to those who would claim to be messengers of Jesus Christ to say that in a very real way we stand in God's direct line of revelation between lost people and God. Now don't miss it from 2 Corinthians chapter 4. What is the ultimate goal for every person? To know God. How does one know God? What is the only way for one to know God? Through the person of Jesus. It's impossible to know God apart from Christ. How do we know who Jesus is? How do we come to know who Jesus is? Through his word. The only way for me to rightly know Christ is to know Christ from the word. And when I come to know Christ from the word, then I see the Father. I get to know the Father. How in the world do people get to know the word? How does a lost man get to know the word? Paul reminds us in Romans and in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 that the way in which a lost man gets to rightly know the word is through the right teaching and proclamation of that word. In other words, through a messenger of Christ. But notice what happens, friends. Notice what happens if you and I, as the messengers of Christ, as those who stand in this direct line of revelation between those who do not believe and the Father. Notice what happens if we preach the wrong Jesus. Notice what happens, uh, Paul says, if we preach ourselves and not Jesus. Will people ever rightly know God? No. See, friends, to be tasked by God to be a messenger of God is to be tasked by God to preach the right message about God. And a wrong message about God leads people to a wrong God. And a wrong God can never provide eternal, sanctifying, saving life. 
Who are you proclaiming this morning? What Jesus are you preaching today? Woodlawn Baptist, we've been entrusted with an incredible message of reconciliation. God hasn't just entrusted to us this narrative, this message of reconciliation. He's also equipped us and called us to be his messengers of reconciliation. We can know the extent to which we have a genuine concern for the hearts and lives of people's eternal state, for it is tied directly to our willingness to proclaim this message of reconciliation to those who do not believe. Do you hear Paul's passion here? We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Have you shared that with your family? Parents, have you woven that gospel narrative into the hearts and lives of your children? Have you been willing to share that gospel narrative with a neighbor, with a coworker, with a friend? See, friends, God has placed every one of us in a sphere of influence, and he's done it for his glory. You might think, no, pastor, you don't understand. I'm very smart. I'm very intelligent. And I have a good job because God gave me a good mind, and I have a good education. And all of those things might be true. But as a believer, friend, everything you have is a gift of God, and God has so equipped you for a purpose. Our ultimate purpose is not for the pleasures of this world. Our ultimate purpose, friend, regardless of the sphere of influence God has given us, is to be a messenger of reconciliation. Would you pray with me this morning? Lord, we thank you for the truths of this gospel narrative, that you've given to us the message, and you've called us to be messengers. And as we reflect for a few moments on that message and our task as messengers, Lord, I pray that in our hearts you would work in such a way that you would compel us as the body of Christ at Woodlawn to be people who at all times live with this gospel narrative continually permeating our hearts and lives. Would you spend a few moments where you're seated today and reflect on God's Word? Have you believed in this message of reconciliation, friend? Have you trusted in Christ? Perhaps you're here today and you've heard this narrative. Perhaps you've even participated in church for a number of years. But you've been counting on small, small acts 
of kindness. Or you've added something else to this narrative, and because of that, your life is separated from God. Would you hear the words of Paul this morning and be reconciled to God? Would you turn from your sins and turn to Christ and believe in him? Perhaps you've never heard this narrative and this is the first time you've heard it. You have questions about what it means to trust in Christ after the service. Sometime this week, myself or any one of the other pastors from this church or someone seated next to you this morning would be glad to share with you what it means for you to trust in Christ and believe. For those of us who have trusted, how is that gospel being lived out in your life? In what very practical ways do you see yourself being this messenger of reconciliation? In what ways are you actually making the same plea that the Apostle Paul made with people to be reconciled to God? Are you using your sphere of influence that God has given you? Parents, are you being diligent to sow the seeds of the gospel into the hearts and lives of your children? Grandparents, are you using your time with your grandchildren to teach them the truths of God's word? Are you being a good neighbor in your community? If not, would you confess that as sin? As you confess that as sin, know that the Lord is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins. And would you ask the Lord to help you live in light of this reality? Would you ask the Lord to impress this role so deep upon your heart and your mind? that you might be compelled, even as we finish this service today, to leave and to go tell a neighbor, a family member, a coworker about Christ. In just a few moments, we're going to stand and corporately respond to the preaching of God's Word. As we corporately respond, myself and Pastor Travis will be standing down front. If you have questions about what it means to trust in Christ, we'd be glad to share with you that now. Perhaps you'd like for one of us just to pray with you that indeed the truths of this text might be evident in your life. There's no greater way for us to shepherd your life than by praying for you. We would delight in, in praying for you this morning. Or thirdly, maybe God has impressed upon your heart that this is a congregation in which you need to be connected to live out your life on mission with him. This would be an opportunity for you to express your interest in being part of this faith family. Lord, as we respond to you, we ask that our response be pleasing. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand with me as we sing?